Listening to the Toronto Legends podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Chuck Swirsky, the man, the myth, the legend, the Swirsk. It certainly feels like an eternity since Chuck Swirsky was calling play by play for your Toronto Raptors, first on radio and then on television for 10 seasons ending in 2008. He used his smooth baritone and unique catchphrases to capture memorable moments, ranging from Vince Carter's early brilliance to Kobe Bryant's 81-point Raptor demolition. In 2008, Chuck returned to his broadcasting roots and joined the Chicago Bulls radio network, where he continues to work today alongside fellow Canadian Bill Wennington. For many in the GTA, Chuck Swirsky stands alone as the greatest Raptor commentator of all time, the GOAT of the booth. Welcome, Chuck, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Well, number one, thank you very much for the uh, introduction, Andrew. I'm very humbled by that. Thank you for the kind words. I am coming to you from the great Midwest. And uh, it's the off season, of course, and uh, getting ready. Summer league just passed. And the uh, Bulls are now prepared, as the Raptors and 28 other clubs are, getting ready for uh, the 22-23 season. Excellent. Now, were you in Las Vegas for summer league? I was not. I was uh, just hanging out, playing some pickleball, uh, trying to improve my horrendous golf swing, um, <laughs> watching some baseball, and uh, having a good time. Well, these are all good things. You certainly deserve some time off, so I think it's great that you're making the most. And may I ask about your family and how everyone's doing? They're doing well. Thank you for asking. Uh, they're busy. Um, they don't have the luxury of uh, such as myself where once our season is over, I mean, the Bulls are great, as the Raptors were. Once the season is over, they just say chill and do your thing and then come back refreshed with a battery running. So uh, that's been a blessing. It really has. Well, that's fabulous. With your permission, Chuck, I'm going to go all the way back and get the full Chuck Swirsky story. Where were you born and raised? All right. Well, number one, Andrew, I want to let you know there are no fences with our podcast. You can go anywhere you want. You can ask any question. It may not be the answer that you're looking for, but I promise you, Andrew, in this hour, and you've been kind enough to invite me on your program, I will be as transparent as I possibly can. I love it. I love it. So we are going to start from Norfolk, Virginia, taking the date and the time to that. Norfolk, Virginia. My father was a naval officer, um, and it was great living in that section of the United States as a young boy, because I got a chance to visit the Naval base every day or almost every day, because my father uh, was on the USS Sierra, the AD-18. It was a Naval destroyer. He was gone quite a bit for maneuvers and for special projects. Um, There were times I didn't see him for weeks and months. My mom held down the house she was a school teacher, uh, first a high school teacher, then middle school, elementary school. Um, but I have two sisters, and uh, one just completed a tremendous run as a flight attendant. And my other sister worked as a school teacher. She worked in the bank, and then she met the man of her life, and they have uh, two girls. And uh, my nieces are fabulous. So, you know, that's that's my world. Life is good. Life sounds great. Now, 1954, born in Norfolk, Virginia, but you grew up in Bellevue, Washington. Is that yes. correct? Yeah. So our family transferred from Norfolk to Bellevue when I was 10. And um, so when people say you're from Virginia or you're from Seattle, I probably say Seattle because those were kind of like the years that molded me, even though I knew when I was five years young, Andrew, I wanted to be a sports broadcaster. I love basketball. And so uh, the years in Bellevue, which was really at that point, almost like a suburb of Seattle 
And now Bellevue is huge on the mm. east side. I mean, it is a major city. And I don't even recognize it when I go back to visit my sisters. I mean, I'm thinking there is absolutely no way I ever envisioned Bellevue to look like this when I was a kid. But, um, you know, growing up in the Pacific Northwest, it was awesome. I mean, everyone, you know, complains about the weather because it rains. But to me, it was no big deal. Um, I truly enjoyed it very, very much. And talk about your experience at Interlake High School. How did you yeah. enjoy that? And uh, we're going to talk a little about other famous alumnus, alumni. But how did you enjoy Interlake? Interlake was um, a great experience because it was a new school. And it was almost like an expansion high school where they pluck students away in zoning from an established school like Sammamish High School uh, and Newport High School and Bellevue High School. And so all these high schools, you know, we had a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And then all of a sudden they have this brand new high school just blocks away from where I lived. And, you know, when I was a kid, I thought I was going to go to uh, the rival high school of Interlake, Sammamish High School, and where, in fact, a Major League Baseball pitcher, Tim Lincecum, went. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to Sammamish. And then all of a sudden, this new high school comes out. And um, my sister, my uh, I have two older sisters, but the youngest of the two, she went to Interlake, and I followed her. And I was there for four years. Well, amongst Torontonians, Chuck, you are the most beloved alumnus of Interlake, but do you know who is number two most beloved alumnus here in Toronto? Let me guess, Nancy Wilson. Well, yeah, you're you're right. The other John key Olerud. alumni include Nancy Wilson, and there's someone else John who you may know, Matt Pittman, the former yeah. public address announcer for the former Seattle Supersonics. Yeah. But here in Toronto, the number two behind you, Chuck, is Mr. John Olerud. Yes. Key cog of the Blue Jays back-to-back World Series wins in 1992 and 93. Yep. And I do want to share my John Olerud trivia with you, Chuck. He wore a batting helmet, even in the field playing first base, as a precaution due to an aneurysm he had suffered at age 20. That's but correct. John Olerud, number two, but Chuck Swirsky, definitely number one alumnus of Interlake. Oh, I'm not sure. <laughs> Andrew, listen, John Olerud, you know, I, I met John a few times, not where I have a personal relationship with him, because that would be a stretch. It was a, hey, John, I want to introduce myself. We went to the same high school, different eras, of course. Um, but you know, he was a terrific high school player. And then he went to Washington State, had, had an outstanding Major League Baseball career. Just a wonderful person when I met him. Always very generous with his time. Nancy Wilson, I grew up with in elementary school, junior high, and high school. Oh, wow. And Nancy, of course, in fact, she just formed her own band now. But Nancy and Anne, her older sister, who went to school with my sisters at Sammamish. And? Um, so uh, the two are rock stars. I mean, they are like Hall of Famer rock stars. And then we had another major league pitcher um, who was in our neighborhood. And I grew up with him in junior high and high school because he transferred in from Portland. But Larry Anderson. Larry Anderson was a right-handed veteran relief pitcher. He was drafted by the Cleveland Indians. He was a year ahead of me in school, and he bounced around with a number of clubs, but really found his niche with the Houston Astros. And then he got traded for Jeff Bagwell. Mm-hmm. So he gets traded to Boston, and I called him up. And in those days, there was no social media, no cell phones. And this uh, honest to God's true story. So he gets traded to Boston. And I call the switchboard at Fenway Park. And, I mean, today you could never pull this off, Andrew. I call the switchboard at Fenway Park. And I said, "Um, you know what? My name is Chuck Swirsky. And I'm with WGN in Chicago at the time I was working there. And I'd like to talk to Larry Anderson. And she goes, who? And I said, he's a pitcher. The, the Red Sox just picked up from Houston. He's a friend of mine. Can I talk to him? She said, hold on. And so the next thing I know, I get uh, the, the, the phone is directed into the clubhouse at Fenway Park. 
Someone picks up the phone. I said, this is Chuck Swirsky from WGN Radio looking for Larry Anderson. Next thing I know, he picks up the phone. And we talked for a few minutes, and I wanted to wish him well. I was thinking in today's world, with sports talk, with podcasts, with social media, there is absolutely no way that I would have been able to do that. Maybe, you know, I have Larry's answer, whole answer green machine at the time, and I could have left a message, but whatever. That's a true story. Well, we're certainly in different times, and it's also interesting because the Bostonians are famous for their uh, <clears throat> politeness, so it's even more amazing that you got through. Yeah. Uh, when we uh, came on today, you uh, just got off the pickleball court, and I wanted to ask you about pickleball because you probably are aware it's the fastest-growing participation activity in North America. Uh, this hybrid of tennis and badminton was actually born in the Pacific Northwest in the 60s. It came specifically out of Washington. You're obviously a pickleball player. Did you play it in high school in the early days? Was it part of your curriculum? No. In fact, I just picked it up a few months ago. My broadcast partner, Bill Wennington, who you mentioned in the intro, uh, he plays pickleball quite a bit. And so I decided, you know what, I want to play. And so I'm still learning the nuances of when to attack the net, when to pull back, how to put spin on the ball, off the paddle. All these things are coming at me. And I'll tell you what, there are some really, really good players who know the the finer points of how to tip the ball off the top of the uh, paddle or when to do a backhand with a little curve to it. And I mean, listen, I, I or, you know, when, and they want to slam it, and it's coming in like a heater. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. So, you know, but I just, I love to be active, and this has been great. So it's a good sport. It's really neat. Well, it's, 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 the, it's the hot, hot, hot sport. So everybody keep your eyes open on the pickleball court. You might see. Chuck out there. You might see me. That's right. <laughs> now, when you finished high school, you went to Ohio State University. How did you choose Ohio State? What did you study? What do you recall about those Ohio State days? How'd you end up there? Well, uh, just to be very blunt about this and clear with your audience, I went to Ohio University. Okay, my but, apologies. You know, Andrew, everyone makes the, the same correlation that it must be Ohio State. And growing up as a kid, even in Seattle, I couldn't stand Ohio State. <laughs> I loved the University of Michigan. And that was my number one choice. But, you know, my father died when I was in the sixth grade. My mom's raising three kids. I actually applied to UCLA, got in, University of Maryland, got in. I did not apply to Michigan because I thought, like, the money is just out-of-state tuition, no chance. And so I ended up getting some financial relief from Ohio U. And so I went to Ohio U in Athens, Ohio. I checked out the school a year before I graduated from high school. They had a phenomenal radio TV program. And um, I decided I loved the campus. It was just the right size, about 15,000. Ohio State at the time was like 35 to 40,000. And I mean, I I would have been suffocated. So um, the three and a half years I spent, I got my degree was like a fabulous experience. I love the school. I stayed basically with every waking moment working at the radio station, either doing sports casts, reporting, uh, play-by-play for high school, play-by-play for college, and did a little sports talk. And I couldn't think of a better school. And if it sounds like a plug, even to this day, you're right, because it is. I love the university. Well, that it's a fabulous because having that fabulous experience, I think, set the table for you. You started your career in radio, 1979, hosting a nightly sports radio show on WCFL, yep. and moved to WLUP, The yep. Loop, and then onto WGN Radio through to the mid '90s. How'd you get your start moving from Ohio University to Chicago Radio? Well, I was able to get internships, and uh, for any uh, individuals the women and men who really want to get a feel for this industry and learn the challenges and the joys and everything in between, I would really suggest that you get an internship. 
because you'll develop a sense of this is what it takes. And you can take things that you're really good and polish your strengths and improve your weaknesses. So I actually did three internships. Two were glorified. One was an internship that was really good because I got a job at NBC Radio in Cleveland. The call letters were 3WE. And um, I worked in the sports department. I wrote Afternoon Drive for Steve Albert. Steve is the younger brother of Marv Albert. Yes, it counts and a foul. A spectacular move by Michael Jordan. I mean, Marv is like the, the voice and the face of the NBA. So Marv is his older brother. The middle brother was Al Albert, who called like a ton of NBA games for Denver and Indiana. And Steve called the WHA, the World Hockey Association, the Cleveland Crusaders, called the Cleveland Nets of the uh, World Tennis League or whatever they called it, and uh, then went on to call boxing, NBA, NHL. He did it all. Called the Mets games. And so I wrote Afternoon Drive for him, Afternoon Sports. I produced a nightly sports talk show with a legend in Pete Franklin. And then on game nights with the Cleveland Ball Club, um, at that time they were named the Indians, now the Guardians. Mm -hmm. But I would go to the ballpark and I would assist the broadcasters during home games, Joe Tate and Herb Score. And this was like a dream come true. I mean, here I am, 19, 20 years old, and I'm in a major league broadcast booth. And I didn't care if they said, hey, can you get me a cup of coffee? I'm getting 10 cups of coffee. Um, You know, in those days, again, no wire machines, nothing. It was no social media. You had a ticker tape. So, for example, if the Dodgers were playing the Phillies, you'd see, uh, you know, coming from spewing out of this machine, LA5, PHIL3, BOT fourth. So, 5-3, bottom of the fourth. Someone would hit a home run. Let's say Greg Luzinski hit a home run. It would be Luzinski, um, 2R. HR, two-run homer, and then 12. So Luzinski had a two-run homer, his 12th of the year, and then they put the inning. So they would, I would just take it right from the machine, give it to the broadcaster, because Joe Tate loved to do his own scorecard, and he would sit in the chair. I'd give it to him, and he said, Greg Luzinski just hit a two-run homer in the fourth inning, his 12th of the year, and the Phillies have tied up the Dodgers at five. And I'm thinking, okay, sounds good to me. Yeah, yeah. And so the, the details were certainly more sparse then. Oh, my gosh. I mean, through the internship, I met so many people. And all these things, you know, led to networking, which is important. Well, during your time in Chicago on the radio, you also became the Chicago Bulls public address announcer in 1980. How did that come about? That came about because the public address announcer took a job in Boston. So I got a call from the head of media relations for the Bulls, Brian McIntyre, who then left like a year or two later for the NBA and, you know, is like an icon in the industry. But Brian called me and said, hey, listen, we're looking for a PA announcer. Would you be interested? I said, okay, I'll try out. Rod Thorne, the man who drafted Michael Jordan, and the man who, by the way, acquired Vince Carter from the Raptors to the Nets was oh. the GM of the Bulls. And so they called me in. I go to Chicago Stadium, the old barn right across the street, you know, is now the United Center where they demolished, you know, Chicago Stadium. So I go into Chicago Stadium. I sit down on a, at a chair at scores table. They give me copy to read. I read for like, I don't know, maybe a minute two minutes at the most, they said, okay, you got it. I said, what? He said, you got the job. I said, really? He goes, yes. I said, wow. And it was great. So that's, that's how that worked. Well, I wondered, you know, things are different today with the announcers. Very different. Well, I wondered if you did it. I got two for you here, Chuck. I got the old school straight up at center 
seven foot two inch, number 53, artist Gilmore. Gilmore. Or did you go more with what is more common today? Your bull starting center, he's seven foot two, the A-train, late sleeper, rigor artist, Gilmore. No, you know what? I, I did not do the, I didn't stretch it out like, everything's changed. This is entertainment now. Back then, um, it, we did have the lovables, you know, the, the dance team. But for public address, I, I was enthusiastic, but I kept it straight. And, um, you know, I, I was thinking about this. I did public address for the Bulls, did public address for one season for the Cubs. I did public address for the Chicago Sting of the North American Soccer League. I did one uh, preseason game for the Bears. And so, I mean, it was, I've kind of like, you know, I mean, I, I did some play-by-play on TV for the White Sox and uh, TV play-by-play for Northwestern. So, I mean, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But it's play-by-play that is what you love and what you're most known for. I want to point out, Chuck, you were such a Chicago sports broadcasting fixture that when you did decide to leave WGN in 1994, no less than Governor Jim Edgar phoned into your show to offer best wishes and he also declared Chuck Swirsky Day in Illinois. That's that right. must have felt tremendous. I was, like, shocked, uh, humbled, grateful. I mean, it was very, very kind of the governor. Um, and, um, you know, I, th- I think about that day because I remember driving home, and I'm thinking, like, did I make the right decision to leave? Uh, and I had all these emotions because I love Chicago. You know, we had... Uh, two children, the third was on the way, and I'm thinking maybe maybe I shouldn't have done this, but the reason I did it, Andrew, so I'm doing play-by-play for DePaul University, a school in Chicago, and during the 80s to mid-90s, they had a really good run for college basketball, but I loved doing play-by-play for basketball. My goal was to do the NBA, and it was my goal from day one in my life. So I uh, thought to myself, okay, I'll, you know what, I'm not going to, if it comes, it comes, if it doesn't, doesn't, but I like to Paul. My program director calls me in, in early August and says, I'm having trouble getting the rights for a good package for our station that makes sense with the Paul. I'm going to tell the athletic director this the last year of DePaul, I'm signing a contract with Northwestern. Northwestern wants to keep their guy. And I said, oh, okay, well, listen, the broadcaster for Northwestern, really good friend of mine, love the guy, good for him. I'm not one of these egomaniacs where I'm stabbing somebody in the back. No way. So I said, go for it. You know, Dave's great, you know. And so out of nowhere, Ernie Harwell legendary voice of the Detroit Tigers, who I met when I was 11 years young and started to have a, a tremendous friendship with him and his family. And so he calls and he says, hey, um, one of the broadcasters for WJR who does University of Michigan uh, basketball and does pre-half and post football and does sports is leaving to go to another station. This job is open. Do you want it? And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, University of Michigan. I mean, this I loved Michigan as a kid. And so I'm thinking, all right, well, I'm going to apply. So I sent the tape in. They call me uh, like four or five days later and said, we'd like to see you and meet you. Can you fly to Detroit? So I was doing morning drive at WGN. I took an afternoon flight at noon, one o'clock Detroit time. It's like 45 minute flight from Chicago. I met with them at three o'clock in the afternoon. And I was there until about 4.30. It was just myself, the program director, Phil Boyce, and met a couple of people, but this was really on the QT. You know, it was just mm-hmm. 
really low vibe. And so he goes, you know, I have to interview a couple more people. Thank you very much. Okay, no problem. Took a six six o'clock flight back to Chicago. I'm thinking, okay, like, you know, it was probably maybe I got the interview because Ernie Harwell, who's a legend, obviously was bigger than life in Detroit. I don't know if they're that interested. Who knows? So I wait two or three days, nothing. And all of a sudden, I get a call from the program director at WJR saying, it's yours if you want it. And I said, oh, okay. So we prayed on it. We elect to make the move. And actually, having left GM was very, very difficult leaving Chicago. Andrew, it turned out maybe to be one of the best moves of my life because I I loved everything about the University of Michigan. I became really ingrained in the athletic department. Um, I loved living in Ann Arbor. And on Saturday, football game day, doing pre af and post, but being at the big house and seeing 112,000 people is like an amazing, amazing experience. And doing that for four years was great. But I also sensed that without making that move from Chicago to Michigan, without the opportunity to have those Michigan name next to my resume, I'm not sure I get an NBA job. That's how powerful Michigan is, the brand. Well, it was so high profile for you to be covering University of Michigan Wolverines basketball. You were also the sports director of WJR in Detroit. But here we find the transition to Toronto. Join the Raptors. You didn't know Canada. Toronto didn't know you. But an American at the Raptors microphone was an instant hit. Your first season in Toronto, 98-99, although a lockout year, was Vince Carter's rookie year. How'd you get the Raptors job? What brought you north to Toronto in 1998? Uh, well, I, I had an agent uh, at the time representing me by the name of Maury Gostafran, who is a spectacular human being and a great representative of so many national and local uh, broadcasters and media people throughout North America and beyond. And so he calls me up and says, listen, um, there are two NBA jobs open. Do you want, you know, to put your toe in the water, so to speak, and check it out? And, you know, again, we were happy in Ann Arbor, loved Michigan. Uh, but I said, sure, let's do it. So he said, okay, I'm going to send the material. And within a week or so, I hear back from the Raptors and the Sacramento Kings. And so they want to see me. They want to meet me. And I first flew out to Sacramento. And the people with the Kings were great. And this job, the job description was to broadcast approximately 25 games, fill-in work for the regular announcer who was on assignment doing auto racing, doing a talk show before and after the game, doing halftime and pregame and post, and then doing the WNBA. They had a, at the time, they don't now, but Sacramento had a WNBA club. Okay. And so I'm thinking, okay, would I rather stay at Michigan and do Michigan than 25 fill-in games doing WNBA, which I'm not criticizing, but, you know, with a young family, growing family, you know, summers are really important to me. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, but to get my foot in the door, you know, it's the NBA. Then two days later, I drove to Toronto. And I had been to Toronto once for the soccer bowl for the NASL. Okay. The Cosmos played the Sting in Toronto. Giorgio Canalia. Yeah. Yes, Giorgio Canalia, rest his soul. I'll tell you what, I loved interviewing him. He was great. But um, I saw so I meet Nelson Millman and Doug Ackhurst, who just passed away. So, you know, condolences to his family. Very, very nice man. But Nelson really drove this. 
And so um, I go to the Fan 590. The station at the time was on Holly Street. And I, I parked the car, and I really don't know what's going on. Um, but I enter the station, and I see Nelson. And Nelson is like electric. His personality is fabulous. I love the guy. There was an immediate connection because I love passionate people who care about what they do. And Nelson cares. And we had a great conversation. And so I meet Doug Ackhurst, meet Nelson, and I thought it went well. They didn't offer me the job. They said, we want to talk. You know, other people, great. So I drove home and, you know, I mean, I waited. So about a week later, um, my agent calls and says, they'd like to see you again. So I drove there and had another conversation with Nelson and said, you know, we just wanted to get you back in talk to you again. And I said, okay. So I thought, you know, the second interview, I thought, okay, I've got a a shot at this. And he told me that like, I'm in the final two or three. And if it works out great, if it doesn't work out, you know, you're right there for an NBA job. So I'm thinking, okay, they're probably going to hire Canadian. And I get that. Uh, But, you know, I really felt a connection. Sacramento called oh boy, and said, how are you doing? We want to let you know you're, you're still in the loop. We're trying to see what's going on. And I'm thinking, oh, boy, they, again, the Kings did not offer me the job. So then, like two, three days later, I get a call from Maury saying, hey, congrats. You're an NBA announcer. The Raptors have hired you. Wow. And it was unbelievable. And so... Uh, that's how I got the job. Well, Sacramento's loss is our gain. Uh, you started in 98, 99 season on radio, moving yep. over to TV starting in 2001. Chuck, your first season in Toronto followed the 97, 98 version of the Raptors, also known as the very worst iteration of that franchise. That squad went 16 and 66. The team was playing at the Sky Dome, now Rogers Center, which effectively was a baseball stadium. Did your friends and family and colleagues back in Illinois and Michigan think you had gone cuckoo taking the Toronto job or you saw the potential of this franchise, Vince Carter, coming? Well, that's a good question, Andrew. So let me, let's break that down in two parts. Number one, um, because the infancy of the Raptors, like when we crossed the border and like when we moved, literally moved, with a with a van lines, we had to go the same speed as a truck because we had to be at the border when the truck, because they were going to inspect the truck, customs, and the border agents. And I get that. So we go into the office, and I've got papers with me, and they said, so what are you doing in Canada? Why are you moving here? And I said, well, I'm the new radio play-by-play announcer for the Toronto Raptors. And one of the customs agents says, the Toronto Raptors? I said, yes. Oh, I'll tell you what, you boys do such a great job on the pitch. <laughs> oh, boy. You went right away. Okay, you wondered where to well, get into. Uh, I said, well, you know what? This is actually a court, and it's a basketball team, not soccer, not football. Oh, okay. Well, I guess I'll have to listen. I said, yes. So, I mean, but I'll tell you what, we had a great group of people. Larry Tannenbaum, the chairman, unbelievable human being, one of my all-time favorites, maybe top two, three in my life. I love the man. I love his wife and family. Judy and Larry are great, 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 great. Then Richard Petty. Richard Petty is the finest individual I have ever met in terms of branding everything. He could, he saw the potential of the Toronto Raptors in the box office, uh, off the court, on the court. He is brilliant, absolutely brilliant. 
And then Tom Anselmi, who's now with Edmonton, he was like, you know, when people always say my, my door is open to talk, his door was always open to talk. And he was such an encourager. And I never had one problem with Tom. Not one. I mean, not where I felt like, boy, do I really want to work here? He, he is great. I mean, he, he, I, I loved working in Toronto and I loved MLSE. So to break down these things for you, Andrew, as far as doing the games, my first two years were on radio and for, you know, we, we caught lightning. Really, it was a perfect storm with Vince. And because my excitement with all the highlights being aired on the Fan 590, then ESPN and the States would pick up our audio calls. And so now all of a sudden, people are listening to the radio with the sound turned down on television. And we're just like, it's, it's like going nuts. And so they said, hey, we want to put you on TV. We're going to do a simulcast with radio, the radio and TV call. And I didn't know how that was going to work. And unfortunately, it didn't because I, I thought it could work. But, you know, it just didn't materialize. So then they said, okay, you're going to go on TV, solely on TV. And that's when the change was made uh, because we I did two years radio. Third year was radio and TV. And then four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10 television. Well, from an auspicious start at the border to, uh, as you say, catching lightning in a bottle, you certainly saw quite a broad spectrum of, yeah. of uh, fan interest. I want to focus, Chuck, with you on two key games from your reign in Toronto. Number one, May 20th, 2001. What if Vince Carter nailed that potential game-winning shot against the 76ers? Game seven of the 2001 Eastern Conference semifinals. Sidebar. Carter had decided to attend his college graduation the morning of this decisive seventh game against Allen Iverson and the 76ers. What was your relationship like with Vince? What do you remember about that game? And what is his rightful place in Raptors folklore? Okay. Well, uh, let's start from the end of your question. Number one, to me, he put basketball on the map in Canada. And I say that with all reverence and respect to those like Leo Routens, Jay Triano, Bill Wennington, Steve Nash. But Vince, with his acrobatic highlights and with his soaring rim rockers and just the energy, every night he was doing it. And he was doing it, and he was just abusing the rim. He would take players off the dribble and embarrass them. And I saw every game that Vince played as a Raptor. And he was Vinsanity. I mean, yeah. it was Air Canada Carter. And um, now, do I think he's the greatest Raptor in the history of the franchise? Probably not because longevity and because of what Kyle Lowry did with an NBA championship team. Mm-hmm. You know, you can put Lowry, you can put DeRozan, Vince. And after that, who knows? But those would be the top three. Sure. Um so I think Vince left an indelible mark on basketball in Canada. And I'm very grateful to see that after a very, very tough and very sensitive and delicate window of after he left, where you know, it was personal, you know, the way he left and what happened and how everything went down. But I'm glad to see that Vince is embraced now by a new generation of Raptor fans and for Raptor fans back during that period of time who remember everything, that they are willing to say, okay, you know what? Let, let's just move forward. Let's let's put that period, that window on the back burner and let's, you know, celebrate what you did as we move forward with this team. So game seven in Philadelphia, it was an unbelievable series with Carter and Iverson. It was a big stage. And both were shining so brightly. And you're right, the the graduation in um, late morning, early afternoon, there was a lot of controversy. You know, everyone was looking for angles. They Everyone wanted me to talk about it. 
ranging from NBC to the New York Times. Everyone was asking me, should he have gone? Should he do this? Should he do that? And I stayed out of it. I didn't talk about it with the exception of, okay, Vince Carter graduated from North Carolina. But when people would ask me, I didn't want any part of it because if if I'm walking in Vince's shoes and this is that important to Vince, God bless him, let him do it. Now, it, he had a private private jet, you know, the Tannenbaums took care of him. I think that was great. And he played a good game. He missed the shot. And had he made that shot, no one would even thought about that. The truth of the matter is, and I know Vince had to take that shot because he's the man. Yep. The truth of the matter is, though, Andrew, if you look at that game and your listeners look at that game, I would encourage your listeners to see who the main man was for the Raptors in the fourth quarter. And it was not Vince Carter. Who was it? Del Curry. Mm. And, you know, I mean, Lenny Wilkins had to call that play for Vince. Everyone knew it was going to Vince. But I'll I'll say this. Had Del Curry taken that last shot, I know Lenny Wilkins would have been, like, ostracized. You know, how can you not have Carter? He's the guy. Take the yep. shot. But had Del Curry taken that shot, I would not have had a problem with that. Yeah. Well, I, I think very well said, Chuck. I, I, too, like you, I'm very glad to see he's being properly embraced. One shot can change a whole perception of a career. And uh, I, I think – just what you said. Everyone's got their own personal choices. And if, if he makes that shot, we're never, we're not even talking about this today. And he's on the Mount Rushmore of uh, Raptors Mountain. Oh, absolutely. The second game from your time in Toronto that really stood out was January 22nd, 2006. Kobe Bryant's 81 point game against the Raptors. The Raptors were actually winning. Kobe took 46 shots, which is insane. Could you believe your eyes when you were watching this unfold in front of you? Well, no, and to this day, it's just from a a broadcast standpoint, from an actual game that I happen to be there, not a game that I'm watching on television and saying to myself, boy, that's the best game I've ever seen. I'm talking about just the, the moment, and I'm living in that moment on a Sunday night, a 6 p.m. start time in L.A. Raptors weren't very good. Lakers are just above average, just a, you know, under 500 at home. Not a, not a great Laker team, not showtime by any stretch. Raptors are winning by like 18 early third quarter. And then there was a play in the third quarter where Kobe came away with a, a steal and raced down the floor in a slam and the Lakers woke up and the crowd woke up. I mean, and it all of a sudden Kobe just took off. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at the monitor and looking at how many points. And it just went, you know, layer by layer by layer. And, I mean, we're we're talking about, I mean, Sam Mitchell played everyone on him, whether it was Mo Pete, Mike James, Chris Bosh, Matt Bonner, Jalen Rose. He used everyone, like everyone. And Kobe was salivating. I mean, he was like, Okay, like this, this would be like the equivalent, Andrew, of a seven-year-old going into a candy store and your parents saying, okay, like, here's the basket, go for it. And, and the kid's going crazy. Well, Kobe was going crazy because he knew exactly what was going on. So I don't know if you have the stats in front of you for that game, but he was unbelievable at the foul line. like. He took over 20 free throws. I think he missed only two or three. But at the end, he makes two free throws, and he gets 81. So, when, you know, he steps to the line, and he's got 79 points. And the crowd, you know, AD, AD. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You know, think about the pressure. You know, you talk about the Lakers are going to win the game, and now their Morgans are get 80. <laughs> You know, there's something about, hey, I scored 80 points in an NBA game. Okay, like 79. All right, we'll sell them for 79. <laughs> 80? 
So he makes two free throws and he gets 81 and he, you know, they, he's out of the ball game and the crowd goes absolutely crazy. And I'm just amazed. And here's the thing. So Rob Polinka, who is my broadcast partner at the university of Michigan, who I've known for years, uh, just a fabulous human being. And Rob is representing Kobe. So um, next time we played the Lakers, um, he actually gave me a one-on-one with Kobe that we put on the pregame show for Bulls TV. And from that point on, every time the Raptors or the Bulls played the Lakers with Kobe, he would always come by and say hello, and he would treat me. And, I mean, I'm not saying we were personal, personal friends, but if he saw me, he would come over and say, Chuck, how you doing? What's going on? Uh, you know, have you talked to Rob lately? Oh, oh, it just, but when he spoke to you, he looked at you in the eyes. It wasn't like, Andrew, where I'm talking to you, and I'm scouting out who else is in the room that might be yeah. more important. I can't stand that, you know. And because like I'm that because I'm not focused and locked in what you're seeing. I'm not listening. I'm more concerned about is there's somebody more important than Andrew in the room. He never did that. He didn't play that card. And I will always be very thankful. So when he passed away, um, we were in a museum in Chicago, actually. And my phone was going off. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm looking at Twitter and I can't believe this. And so it's just a very much of a tragedy. But getting back to that game, it's probably the finest game I have personally ever called in my life because of the magnitude of it. Well, and it's amazing to hear that you can be really amazing on the court, but it's another thing to be an amazing person as well. That's great that you had such a positive experience with him. Now, in 2007, you, Chuck Swirsky, were honored with your very own bobblehead. In fact, it was a talking bobblehead. Yes. Although 18,000 of these Chuck Swirsky bobbleheads were handed out, they are today extremely rare. They're on eBay, I have to inform you, $600. I hope you kept a few. Huh. Well, there were actually two bobblehead nights, which I'm thankful. One was a talking bobblehead. The other was a bobblehead. And I was like very thankful that the Raptors would do that. And here's what happened. So the Raptors come to me in the off season. This is probably May or June. And they said, we'd like to do a bobblehead, a talking bobblehead. Can you come into the office and record some of your scenes? And they said, sure. Now I, I listen as a kid, everyone liked bobbleheads. You know, they would have the baseball bobbleheads the whole bit the very miniature type. I didn't know what they were playing. I don't know what they were doing. So uh, I go into this little room. They have a tape recorder. I record some scenes. Get out the salami and cheese, mama. This ball game is over. Raptors win. Raptors win. Raptors win. You know, all the, all the scenes that, you know, I, I picked up, known love, air, Canada, whatever. So, um, so then, um, the night happens and the Raptors played the Denver Nuggets. And I think it was a Friday night and it was, it was like a, a night I will never forget. Then we had another bobblehead night, like a year or two later when I became a Canadian citizen and it was, uh, Chuck the Canuck night and they did a bobblehead. So listen, I was so very much thankful and appreciated by Toronto. And as much love as they gave me, I tried to give it back tenfold. And honestly, that will never, ever go away from me, the reception that the Raptor fans gave for myself, my family. And I love Canada. I became a citizen, as you know. And, you know, I mean, I'm so thrilled they won a title three years ago. And I'm happy for people like the Tannenbaums. When it's all said and done, players come and go. But without without Larry Tannenbaum, the Raptors are not in Toronto. I'm telling you that right now. Well, let's talk a little more about you becoming a Canadian citizen. In 2007, as you say, you became Chuck the Canuck. Why was this important to you? 
Well, it was important because number one, I, I love the country. I love Toronto. I love the culture. And I thought I was going to be in Toronto forever. I mean, the last thing I expected were the Bulls to call. And there were a lot of floating parts that led me to, you know, to come back to Chicago. And I love the Bulls. I mean, the ownership of the Bulls with Jerry and Michael Reinsdorf are just like the Tannenbaums, just, you know, the outstanding human beings. Forget about owning a, a basketball team or whatever they own. Truth of the matter is, at the end of the day, we're talking about human beings and the fact they have a heart and they have a soul, they have a pulse for people, for people in need. They've done an amazing job, both the Bulls and the Raptors, helping people for in charitable efforts across the board. And, and I like people like that who give of themselves. So uh, leaving um, Canada after I became a citizen was very, very hard. But um, I'm proud of my citizenship. And I'm proud of the fact that I can, even though I've been gone now, this is my 15th season with the Bulls. It's hard wow. to believe. But, um, you know, uh, the 10 years I spent with Toronto, Andrew, will always, always, always be a very deep-rooted fiber of my humankind in my life. Well, like you say, it's been 15 years since you're here, and I still get asked all the time when we ask who do people want us to speak to, and Chuck Swirsky's name comes up again and again. Well, I'm you know ask- I mean, I appreciate it. You know what? I'll, I'll tell you what I would love one day to do. Just for one quarter, I'd love to switch with Matt, who does a great job. But I would love to call just one quarter with Jack or Leo or both, just for old time's sake. Because I think it would be great. Maybe, you know, maybe at the end of my broadcast run, hopefully that's not for a number of years. Yes. But, you know, for a closure, when the Bulls play the Raptors, it would be great just because there is so much history involved and so much heart and passion that I've got for the Raptor franchise. And yet at the same time, I'm very, very blessed, you know, with the Bulls because it is a great organization. And I mean, to, to have myself come into the NBA and have an opportunity with the foundation of two great franchises to represent and to call, um, and specifically and especially for the people who run these operations, whether it's Larry Tannenbaum or whether it's, you know, Jerry and Michael Reinstorf, it's, it's tremendous. Well, these good things don't just happen to anyone, Chuck. It's a two-way street, and Toronto loves you. I think your idea is great. we got to make that somehow happen. We would love to see you do the, do the swap for a quarter. I hope you're not tired yet of explaining the origins to your key catchphrase. Get out the salami and cheese, mama. This ball game is over. Yeah, well, so I got a letter. Okay. Oh my gosh, a letter, not an email. Yes, a letter. And a guy wrote me and he said, listen, you know what? I I love the Raptors. I'm on the edge of my seat every game. He goes, but I get hungry, but I don't want to miss a play. So, you know, like when, when when you think the Raptors have won, can you just kind of say, you know, hey, it's okay. You can go to the fridge and, and, you know, and I, so I thought, and he goes, by the way, I like salami and cheese. So we're playing and, you know, all of his Raptors are up by like 10 points. It's late in the fourth quarter, uh, very late, like with a minute and a half to go, a minute. And I, all of a sudden I said, get out the salami and cheese, mama. This ball game is over. And the producer in the headset is talking to me. Now the audience can't hear this. He goes, uh, Chuck, what was that? <laughs> I said, and I hit the mute button to talk back to the trucks. And I'll explain later. He goes, what did you just say? Something about salami and cheese and what? And, and so while, you know, Leo or Jack's talking, I said, don't worry, I'll explain. So, you know, I said, don't worry, won't happen again. Well, the switchboard blows up. Yeah. And the next thing I know, people are bringing signs to the Air Canada Center at the time, ACC. You know, salami and cheese. The Raptors would be winning by like eight points, 10 points, 12 points with like 40 seconds to go. The reserves off the bench would be walking to the scores table looking at me and said, have you called the salami and cheese? (laughs) These are the players. 
<laughs> okay, you know. So, I mean, it just, it, and all of a sudden, you know, Pizza Pizza decided to do a salami and cheese. We had all these things going, so it was wonderful. Well, that's a great origin story. Chuck, you're also well-known for your granting nicknames, CB4 for Chris Bosch, the Red yep. Rocket for Matt Bonner, most famously, Air Canada for Vince Carter. Did the players like your nicknames, and did you have any personal favorites from either your Raptor days or, or covering the Bulls now? Uh, the players did like nicknames. I would always run it by them first because, I, I you know, you don't want to – you, you don't want to do something and embarrass either a player or do something that they're not comfortable with. So, as you know, with the train system in Toronto, the Red Rocket, you know, with the uh, streetcar. And so I went to Matt and I said, Matt, you know what? Toronto loves you. You know, the way you play, you got the red head, you got the red rocket. We're going to do it. He goes, why not? Let's do it. And it stuck and he loved it. And he was famous, I believe. He actually took the TTC to get to games. Yes, he would. So, um, and, and there's a little story to that because we had a player, Pop So. And Pop So had um, a car, but he didn't have a driver's license. Matt Bonner had a driver's license, but no car. And so I'm thinking, okay, like, we got to do something about this. So Matt, with his driver's license, would drive Popso's car. And, and we got these two seven-footers driving down. It was probably a, a tiny car. With, with oh, the yeah, because one that. had a driver's license, the other didn't. But the one who didn't had a car. So think about that. Anyway, so, um, but Vince was great. Vince loved Insanity, Air Canada Carter, the whole bit. Mo Pete, MP3. And so I'm dating myself. But in those days, in the early 2000s, there was a, a music uh, device that would have a little disc, and it was called an MP3 player. Yes. Well, Mo Peterson, Mo Pete, MP, loved to shoot threes. So I would do, that's an MP3. Um, and so he loved it. And then Anthony Parker, who had jersey number 18, and he always loved to shoot corner threes. Okay. So when he would shoot, I would say that's a three ball from 18 Parkerville Court because that was his little home, his little territory. And he loved that. In fact, when I still see him, we give a fist bump, 18 Parkerville Court. <laughs> so, great. I mean, CB4, you know, we, we had the Bosch pit, like a mosh, the Bosch pit near the stanchion with the fans. He loved that, CB4. And, um, you know, one thing after another, Jamario Moon, Apollo 33, because yeah. the moon and the way he dunked. So, yeah, I mean, it was that, that was just something that I loved and that the players embraced. And, you know, Alvin Williams, because he, he loved to shuffle down the floor. We called him Boogie Williams. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, it was like, it was just amazing. Chuck, how often do you get uh, confused or compared to Dickie Vitale? Not, you know, not really, not, not a lot. I think uh, the comparisons maybe because of the hair. Or like, <laughs> well, and your enthusiasm and your uh, passion. But the enthusiasm, because I, I do love what I do. I mean, I love what I do, and I love the people that I work with, both with the Raptors and the Bulls. And, you know, I'm sure there are people who don't like my style, or, you know, and I'm sorry about that. And I truly am sorry because I, I never like to, you know, do anything to hurt people or say something that I, but at the end of the day, I'm not perfect. I just try and present how I view a basketball game. And, you know, the fact that someone would tune in either on radio or turn on the television is a compliment because they do want to see the game. They do want to see players. They don't want to see me. I mean, like, when the team is doing well, the ratings are great. When the team's not doing well, the ratings aren't very good. I get all that. But I have a responsibility and obligation that when that red light goes on and for me to call the game, that I engage, inspire, entertain, and inform people. And, you know, again, this is my style. This is who I am. And that's why there's chocolate and vanilla. 
Very well said. Now, Chuck, I would be very remiss if I didn't ask pre pre preseason, what is the outlook for both your Chicago Bulls and our Toronto Raptors heading into next season? For the Bulls, I think we're all about health. I mean, we had a really great start. Billy Donovan is an outstanding coach. And I really like what we were doing the first half. Then all of a sudden, injuries. Lonzo Ball goes down. All of a sudden, Caruso goes down. We get hit with COVID like every team did. And so then the schedule got tougher. And before you know it, we are really limping into the playoffs. And we got beaten five games by a really, really good Milwaukee team. But if we're healthy, uh, you know, with the addition of Dragic and Drummond and our pick, uh, Dale and Terry, who I really like, I think he's going to add a lot uh, if he can crack the rotation. We have a really deep team right now with a lot of guards, so we'll see how that plays out. But I, I really like our team. Um, and what can I say about the Raptors? I mean, Masai and Bobby in the front office and Nick as a head coach, I mean, this this is a machine now. They've got it down. They they know exactly what they're doing. And this doesn't surprise me. I met Masai when he was the assistant GM under Brian Colangelo. And I stayed in touch with him when he was with Denver and then went back to the Raptors. This really does not surprise me what's happened to Toronto because of Masai and because of the people that have surrounded and brought in by Masai. So I'm not really shocked of their success, nor how they can continue to um, supply the right kind of talent. When a player leaves, they bring in a player similar or who knows the system or a better skill player. So I think they're going to have a great year. I really do. I, I love the talent on that well, club. We certainly hope so. We're, we're looking forward to this year. Is Kevin Durant going to be a Raptor and should he be a Raptor? Well, that's probably a question you probably should ask Masai, not not me. Uh, I really don't know. That's above my pay grade. But, um, you know, I, I, I'll tell you what bothers me about the league. And, again, I get it. The players have the right for uh, to select free agency if they want to go in that direction. But once you sign a contract, and, listen, if you're that unhappy, then – I guess you have to make a decision, but I don't like players always asking out or always asking, want to be traded or, you know, it just bothers me. And yet again, I I respect each player. I respect the fact they've earned a right for free agency. Kevin Durant is not a free agent. And so we have to keep in mind, people have this idea that he's a free agent and he's looking for a sign and trade. That is not the case. He's got multiple years left on his deal. And if he stays with the Nets, I know he'll play hard because I'm a big Kevin Durant fan, just like I'm a big Kyrie Irving fan. I think they're wonderful players. But all this stuff that's going on, really, I'm I'm not a, a big fan of, especially playing, playing it out in public uh, almost on a daily basis with all these leaks. That's not my thing. It, so it is not to a- answer your question, I don't know. I stay out of that stuff, and I'll worry about, you know, once we start playing games. Well, I agree with you. It is not a good trend that these players are not honoring their contract and seeing it through. But even if Durant was available as a free agent, I'm going to go on the record. Scotty Barnes is going to be too good, and uh, I don't want to see him go anywhere. Chuck, you've been very good with your time, very giving of your time. As we wrap up, I want to ask about your plans for the remainder of 2022 and beyond. What are you working on now besides enjoying your summer and and preparing for next season? Well, right now I'm just um, working. Here's here's the thing, Andrew, and I really, really appreciate the forum to open up with you. You've done a magnificent job with your questions, so thank you. My goal is this. Every day I wake up, And I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better father. I want to be a better friend. I want to be a better coworker. And I want to be somebody that continues to give. And I, however long I have left on this world, whether it's one day, 10 years, 20 years, whatever the case may be, I want to make sure that I have squeezed this orange as much as I can. 
And, you know, I, I'm very appreciative of people that have come through my life to assist and support and help me. And in, in turn, this is the type of human being that I want to do. I want to plant the seed. I want to be that person who waters the growth of another human being, whether it's my wife, whether it's my children, whether it's my next door neighbor, whether it's the person that's a 16-year-old kid that wants to be a sportscaster and the voice of the bulls or raptors one day. That's why I'm very transparent. I have no agenda. I want people to succeed. When things happen in my world that may not turn out the way I want things to turn out, um, you know, when you accept it and you get up and you put on your shoes and you go back to work and you try to be that much better the next day. That's me. What a great note to close out on. Chuck, I really appreciate your time. You delivered, you know, you, you, you see people on TV, hear them on the radio, you expect them to be a certain way. You are exactly what I expected. Thanks for your time, your enthusiasm and passion. We are going to follow up on that idea because when you come back to Toronto, we'd love to see you get back behind the microphone on the Raptor sideline. So thank you again. All right, Andrew. Be well. Thank you. And thank you to your audience. And to our listeners, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends podcast. And on behalf of Chuck Swirsky, I am Andrew Applebaum saying... Get out the salami and cheese, mama. This interview is over. the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. Kids, I'm your eager beaver. And I'm Mr. Grizzly. If you love politics or hate politics, then have we, we the perfect, perfect podcast for you. The True North Eager Beaver. Incisive political commentary. We keep you up to date and give you the political and media literacy you seek. To help you cut through the bovine fecal matter. Facts first. Sound analysis. Sometimes I growl. Sometimes I sass. We impart civics and build community. And we share some laughs along the way. Being informed and engaged has never been more fabulous. Or sexy. Catch us on the Dean Blundell Network. Or on our YouTube channel. Or wherever you get your podcasts. Because democracy is something you do.